Hello and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. On Writing the Coast, you'll hear conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. My guest for this episode is Harrison Mooney. Harrison's book, Invisible Boy, A Memoir of Self-Discovery was a finalist for the 2023 Hubert Evans Nonfiction Prize and the 2023 Jim Diva Prize for Writing That Provokes. On this episode, Harrison talks about how he approached researching his own life and how storytelling is how we heal each other. Harrison starts our conversation with a reading from Invisible Boy. Well, uh, this part needs no setup because uh, it's the beginning. So uh, it is the setup. Um, So this is uh, the beginning, part one, the irrational. uh, Chapter one, circus, or the boy who wore a very loud hat. I don't know where I came from, but I remember craving something sweet. So I stopped at the coffee shop on my way home. I must have been about 16. I drove down in my black Toyota Echo but I left there feeling eight or nine years old. I was standing in line for a donut or six donut holes in a box when an elderly white woman turned around, saw me behind her and shouted out, little black waif. She said each word sharply with beats in between, loud enough for everyone to notice. The room fell so silent I heard my tinnitus, the ringing that starts when the world goes away. One moment I stood in a long line of people, the next, I was locked in a liminal space with a stranger whose hatred immobilized me. It felt like the power went out in the building, but I couldn't breathe just as I couldn't see, and I found myself wondering, how do I move? So I knew that the power had only gone out from my body. And then it was over. The elderly white woman's partner laid hands on her lovingly, graciously, leading her back to the counter to order. A duchy, a crawler, and two double-doubles. I looked around at the tables, hoping that the woman was shouting at somebody else, and I saw that it couldn't be anyone else, and the rest of the coffee shop's customers already knew that. I felt every pair of eyes identify me, the weight of the white gaze descending, impressing upon me, imagining who might this little black waif be, and where did he come from, and what did he do to provoke this poor woman? But interest in me faded quickly, and suddenly I disappeared as though nothing had happened to anyone. No one saw anything. The power of their denial teleported me outside. One minute I was there, and then I wasn't. I was simply whisked away, as if by magic. When I got home without any donuts, my white family wouldn't believe me. I must have misheard or done something wrong, they insisted, and five sets of cynical eyes took me back to the scene of the crime. Let's go through it again. My mother, who micromanaged all that I imagined, suggested that, somehow, I'd shown disrespect. It felt like she wanted to blame me. I wanted to help her. But nothing I could think of would explain the old lady's explosion. I didn't jump the queue. I didn't fail to hold the door. The woman was in front of me. I didn't stand too close. I didn't dance or curse. I didn't try to snatch her purse. She was probably demon-possessed, said my mother, who saw the devil everywhere. But even this failed to account for the outburst. What was it about me that so offended her evil spirit And why would it suddenly erupt right there in the coffee shop? And why, if my mother's suspicions were true, would the Lord leave me so unprotected? 
What was I wearing? I wonder now. I don't recall. I've lost sight of myself over time. My day-to-day -day style that particular summer was Hawaiian print mostly, so maybe the loudness offended the woman. But it could have been Sunday, and then I'd be dressed up for church. Who could be bothered by church clothes? A demon-possessed sort of person, perhaps. Maybe my mother was right, and the incident wasn't about race at all. I was adopted. I began in Vancouver, British Columbia, the westernmost province of Canada, cut from my birth mother's womb in July 1985. She was 15 or 16 years old, in foster care then, just a wayward black youth who engaged in premarital sex with the star of her high school soccer team. He was a white kid. His family was German. Keeping this biracial baby was out of the question, but so was abortion. The families were Christian. Surrender was all but imposed on the mother. She had little say in the matter. She took me to term, and they took me away, born to no one, a ward of the Salvation Army's Grace Hospital. Eleven days later, the paperwork cleared. A wealthy white couple arrived to collect me. They didn't take me far. The city of Abbotsford is an hour's drive east into the Fraser Valley, named for the river that emerges there from the canyons at sea level. The fertile region is rich with raspberries and religion, and is derisively nicknamed the Bible Belt of British Columbia on account of its many churches. In Abbotsford, the largest Fraser Valley community, there are nearly 100 congregations, one for every thousand residents, and the nickname is a point of pride. If this is the Bible Belt, pastors would say, then Abbotsford must be the buckle. The mostly white suburb, which borders on Washington State, is also the site of the only recorded lynching in Canadian history. The 14-year-old victim, a solo boy named Louis Sam, was hung from a tree by a mob of Americans dressed as his people 101 years before my arrival and just down the road from my house by the mini-golf course. But I didn't know that then. Abbotsford's history never came up. We were starting from scratch. I was raised in a vacuum, brought up between bedsheets, educated at home from grade 4 to grade 12 through a Christian curriculum published in Florida. Some children thrive on independent study. For me, a black adoptee, cut off from my community and trapped in an all-white cocoon, it meant finding my way with no context for my situation, no sense of shared struggle or circumstance, and no contact with those who could help me to see what I needed to see to make sense of the world. In a roundabout way, my white family created me, for all creation stories begin with a separation. They gave me a new name. They gave me a language that limited how I envisioned myself. They told me that I was delivered, not into the arms of a woman who loved me, but out of the darkness. My creation was sinful. Two sinners had sinned. That's how I was made. That's what I was. And sin makes God sick to his stomach. He can't even look at it. But somehow, he saw me, they said, and he gave me to them. I believed them, and so I was saved. I became born again. Thereafter, I came to imagine my blackness as proof of my brush with the fires of hell. What a relief to escape with the skin of my teeth. Thank you. So my first question for you is, who are you? <laughs> oh, hi. Uh, I'm Harrison Mooney, uh, the author of Invisible Boy, a memoir of self-discovery. Um, uh, and uh, I don't know, you know, I'm a, I'm a guy. I'm an award-winning journalist as well. I mention that sometimes. Um, I guess now an award-winning author. This book uh, won the, the Kobo Emerging Writer Prize, which is very cool. Um, you know, but uh, like more than that, I, I, 
I'm, I'm a dad. I'm, uh, I don't know. I could keep going. I have a dog. Um, you know, <laughs> I like to laugh. I like to have fun. Um, but yeah, mostly I'm a guy that writes books and tells stories. And, uh, you know, this was, this was the first story I, I had to tell, um, you know, in order to, to make way for all the other ones, I think. So, uh, you know, right now I say I write, I write books, but, uh, really I, I wrote book, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and the rest of the books will come. Yeah, for sure. Um, so you mentioned you read from the beginning of the book, but there's actually a little bit that comes before the beginning of the book. Uh, I'm a nerd who really enjoys an author's note and Ooh, yeah. I really enjoyed yours. Um, I was interested too in the way you approached kind of researching yourself. So how did you kind of set that up to research your own life and why was that important to do for this book? Yeah. Um, you know, it was important to me because my story is, um, you know, it, it's, this is kind of the story of my reality and, and so much of my upbringing was, um, you know, it existed in a different reality. So, you know, as I as I kind of you know came to uh, like accept and identify with blackness, um, I started to see how I'd been raised in, you know, a white reality. And it had uh, allowed my family and my community to deny a lot of my experiences, um, to blame me for, you know, the moments that were tough, um, you know, and then to, to act like, you know, any time that I suspected that maybe my race or you know my body was was affecting the way that the situation was going um you know they would just say they could say no you know you're wrong you're playing the race card you're too sensitive um so the idea of, of writing my own story and and you know backing it up um was really important to me because i i just feel like everyone always challenges my version of events um you know so i had to I had to to speak to those people and I had to see what I could corroborate from my own memories, um, you know, and I had to see uh, the, the context for my situation, um, you know, a context that was kept from me. So it was it was just really important to me that I I did my due diligence and I and I made sure to, you know, prepare myself for any counter arguments or disagreements or or, or conflict that might arise from from telling my story truthfully um to me so you know that meant speaking to pretty much everybody who appears in the book um you know letting them know hey i'm, I'm going to tell this story this is what i remember what do you remember um and and whenever possible you know looking into um you know the places we went and the the history of the time um you know and really just anything i could to to get a broader understanding of this situation and you know, i i want to establish too that like finding out um you know anything i could about these stories it didn't really change the story that i was telling you know because my memories are my own and um like i have to i have to engage with those memories i have to react to those memories you know i have to sit with them so you know it wasn't it wasn't a matter necessarily of um you know, finding the like finding everybody else's version of the story and then writing that because I'm going to prioritize that as the truth. You know, um, sometimes, you know, there were memories that that didn't make a lot of sense to me. And I mean, I included them the way I remember them because that's the way I remember them. And and that's that's my truth. So, you know, research for for the sake of telling a, a fair and accurate story, um, but never for the sake of of overriding 
my own memory of how that story went just kind of to, to supplement it. Yeah. That's so interesting because it's one of those things where like we can all be in the same room together and have the same experience, but our memories of it will likely be entirely different. And so, you know, it's, it's important to stay true to your own truth of that experience, but while recognizing like the filters that we all wear that kind of interpret that experience differently. Yeah. You know, it's that Rashomon effect, right? Where everybody just has such a different version of events. Um, you know, but uh, one thing I think that our, our memory does is it it works to protect us, um, you know, and it works to protect our our sense of ourselves. So um, this book has uh, has a story where I, I see an angel, you know, clear as day. I saw this angel. I saw it. Uh, and my memory is of seeing this angel. But then, you know, later on, looking back, no, I did not see an angel. Um, I made it up for attention. You know, I was six. I wanted to be to be noticed and 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 exalted and you know, made to feel like I belonged in this in this space, you know, in this uh, this big tent revival. And so all the other kids were seeing angels. And I said, well, I saw an angel. But then what happened was, as I got older, you know, my memory of of lying about that for attention, that was wiped away. You know, it was uh, because, uh, you know, I wanted to I wanted to believe my whole life, like, I'm not a liar, like, I'm just a I'm just a boy. And these are my memories. And, And so my, you know, my memories would just kind of edit the part where I lied. Um, and as I looked back at these stories and saw how that had happened, you know, I thought, well, that's really interesting because I, I still carried that memory of seeing an angel for a really long time. You know, I still have it. Um, and I know now that it's it's a false memory. I just, you know, I remember my own lie. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that there's value in that. And there's value in acknowledging the ways that, you know, we tell ourselves certain stories to to feel certain ways and to uphold our identities, um, you know, often to our detriment, sometimes not. But uh, I think that the the story of a memory and the way a memory can evolve is is really powerful. And I wanted to make sure that, um, you know, as we're kind of tracking my journey from from white cult to black consciousness, as I often say, we also acknowledge, you know, the moments when I when I believed irrational things and really forced myself to to see those things um, and then later had to look back and, and realize I was you know, I was, I was being silly. Yeah. I, you, as you mentioned, you have a background in journalism. How were you able to use your background as a reporter uh, in your role as a memoirist? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I did a lot of research in, in newspaper archives. Um, you know, one of my favorite coworkers at the Vancouver Sun was the librarian. You know, there, there, there aren't that many librarians um, in journalism anymore. It's, it's one of these roles that's been cut, but but we had one, Carolyn, and and she would, you know, I could ask her the the dumbest questions about old newspaper clippings, and she'd find them, and she'd get me all the context, and she'd show me how to find them, you know, how to dig into the archives and and the resources that were available to me as a journalist. So when it came time to to write Invisible Boy, um, you know, often I would I would just dive into those archives and you know find anything I could. So there are you know there are clippings from. Um, you know, when when my biological mom ended up at the the unwed mother's home in Marple, um, there's a whole story about, you know, not about her being there, but about the the facility, um, you know, and it was a story written the year that I was born, you know, so it was fascinating because the the reporters who, who covered that story, um, they still worked at the, at the Vancouver Sun, you know, I knew them. So you know, to know that they were there and that they they talked to my mom and they, 
um, you know, and they and they told this whole story about this unwed mother's home. Um, I mean, that was fascinating. And it, you know, it gave me a lot of understanding of, of what that space was like. You know, I looked into, um, you know, just the like the reporting around adoption and, and transracial adoption. And, you know, I was able to find an article from the, the early 80s um, just kind of reporting on the the shortage of healthy white babies available for adoption. You know, and it and like that was just said plain as day. You know, it wasn't there was no there was no reflection on what a strange thing that is to to say or report on. Um, but I mean, the understanding then that that my adoption came at a time when there weren't any white babies available. Um, I mean, that changed everything for me. So, you know, being able to dig into the archives was was really valuable. And then also just knowing how to interview people and and how to kind of you know, make those cold calls and ask my questions and um, shut off emotionally a little bit during those interviews because because some of them were were really tough. Um, you know, I was I was really glad for my journalistic background. It it, it made the the whole process a lot easier. Yeah, for sure. In your your reading, you describe Abbotsford and the Bible Belt, uh, and I'm always interested in how people approach like place and setting because it can just simply be the backdrop for where a story is set. But in your book, it's much more significant than that. Um, why was it important to make sure you got like Abbotsford and the Fraser Valley so clear in people's minds? Because it is such a unique kind of culture and environment mm -hmm. that exists there. Yeah, um, it was important because I, you know, I don't think that my story is, um, you know, I don't think it's going to line up exactly with every transracial adoptee story. You know, I think that that mine is the way it is in large part because of where it's set. Um, you know, Abbotsford is a weird place. And, um, you know, the I mean, the 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 Bible Belt, like that's a real thing. Like It's just it's such a religious town. And, you know, there are the people that go to church and there are the people that left church. But even the people that left church, I mean, they're still. They're still, you know, responding to church. They're still in communication with church, right? You know, they'll be like, I'm an atheist. Like, there is no God. Do you hear me up there? You don't exist. Um, you know, so it it just, it, it, it was so clear that um, in writing this book, I had to make sure that people understood, you know, how religious um, and how fundamentalist Abbotsford is, um, you know, at least on my side of town. And then also understood that it's also, like a segregated city, you know, there's like a, a white side of town and a brown side of town. Like, you know, when you've crossed that line, um, it's bizarre. But, uh, you know, in order to really drive it home, you know, that I'm, I'm being taught irrational things. Um, I'm living on the white side of town. Like there's a conscious segregation. Um, you know, I had to really make Abbotsford come to life. Um, it was nerve wracking, too, because I, you know, I know a lot of people out there and I knew that if I got it wrong, they'd say, you know, hey, this is not what my town is like. But uh, so far, the feedback has been pretty much universally. You nailed it. Um, so, you know, if you're reading this book and you're thinking this isn't this can't be a real place. Trust me, it is. And everyone in Abbotsford who has read this book is like this book describes this place perfectly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It, it's interesting in, in you describing Abbotsford as a segregated community. And then in your reading, you also talk about the the lynching that happened in that uh, community so many years ago. But so many people don't know these realities. Like instead, mm -hmm. we've layered upon like you talk about this, uh, these false realities and and 
One of them is obviously around racism, particularly in this province. Um, We don't engage with our racist history and our racist presence. It's just kind of like, you know, so many people compare, we compare ourselves to everyone else. And it's like, well, we're not as racist as Americans, for example. But it's like, but we're still racist. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but we layer on these false stories, you know, there, there's also like false realities around uh, adoption and, and, you know, it, we seem to understand it as an overwhelming good, but we don't often discuss the negatives and the, mm-hmm. the, the way it impacts children and families and the long-term effects of that. Um, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about those false understandings and how you engaged with them in the book. Yeah. Um, you know, so adoption uh, is, is one of those things that, yeah, like it's framed as this as this charitable act, this kind of unassailable good act, um, you know, but I mean, not only was my experience of, of my own adoption um, not good, um, but you know, like that's that's a framing and it's a framing that has been established to, um, you know, to continue to, uh, I mean, traffic children to buy and sell children, um, you know. And so there's there's so much built up around adoption. You know, I mean, there's obviously the, the religious aspect. Like if you if you sin, if you have a child out of wedlock, um, you know, then like one of the ways to kind of show repentance for that sin is to is to give that child up and and in so doing answer a good christian family's prayer um you know and then there's also just the the like this idea that adoption is is for the children but it's not you know it's 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 the the resort like the last resort of people who can't have children of their own so they then go out and they find available babies um, you know, we are, we're children that fill a space, we fill a need, we're a, a commodity, um, you know, and then on top of that, I mean, the, the way that we do adoption is, is cruel, you know, and so many of them, we, we take the child away from the mother, and that's it, you know, and then, like, I mean, I was raised um, to be afraid of my birth mother, it was like, well, like, she's a bad person who did a bad thing, um, you know, don't go seeking her out, she'll probably just want money and hurt you again. You know, stay here. Um, don't don't look into your family history. Don't um, you know explore your identity. Um, you know, it was uh, it was this kind of like they wanted us to keep our heads in the sand for for our whole lives, and and you know you you wind up just being discouraged constantly from from really even acknowledging your own adoption. You know, it's like it, it felt a little bit sometimes like. Um, like being told I was playing the race card, you know, it's like, oh, you're bringing up your adoption again, you know, and now like I, I've, I've done a lot of reading into, um, you know, like the, the trauma of adoption, the way that uh, children who are, who are, you know, adopted at birth, um, like I think they're like their suicide rates are like four times higher, mental health problems, four times more likely, um, you know, we have these kind of lifelong abandonment issues. And the assumption is that, you know, well, because you're a baby, you won't remember that, but it's not how it works. So, you know, I know that the the moment I met my birth mother was like such uh like an overwhelming experience of healing. Like it just felt like, you know, wow, like there was a, a massive wound here. And this is the first time that, you know, anyone's even tried to put a band-aid over it, you know, um, you know, or or tried to suture it or whatever. 
Um, you know, and I, I think that that you know adoptees are are just kind of um, like left to their own devices and expected to to be quiet about the ways that this affects us. Um, you know, in the ways that it leaves us unsure of ourselves, a little lost in our own bodies, um, you know, lost in communities. Um, you know, there's there's so much harm that uh, that adoption actually causes. And um, if we acknowledged it, it would be a lot less common. But of course, it's it's serving a need for mostly white families. And so, you know, it it, it makes a lot of sense to me that we wouldn't acknowledge that. Um, yeah. It's not about us. It's about them. Yeah. Yeah. Did you want to touch at all on, you know, the racism and the false realities that we've created on that part of it or? Yeah. I mean, certainly, um, you know, as I got older and I and I found out, you know, what what slavery was really like, um, you know, because you're kind of raised to be like, oh, well, there were there were slaves and uh, like most of them were treated pretty nicely. And then eventually, you know the nice white folks let them go and it was all you know the, the abolition was the result of, of good christians um like praying and agitating until that happened you know um like somehow somehow white christians are also the heroes of slavery uh it's it's really bizarre um but you know finding that out and then you know and then realizing like okay so we stopped buying and selling black children and yet um like i was bought and sold uh like how does that make any sense um, and I, I feel like when when you're raised in this in this vacuum, you know, with without any context for, um, you know, the black experience or or for um, like how many hundreds of years we've been buying and selling people. Um, yeah, it's, it's just wild to me that we that we can still do it and that people can, you know, like, yeah, like a white family can adopt me, pay their money, you know, do the fees like with a straight face. Like you didn't think for a second that maybe this was just too slavery adjacent you yeah. didn't think about that um you know and it's also like the the big issue for me is it's a theft um you know my my birth mom she was 16 when she had me and she was in foster care so she was adoptable you know there was no reason to take me from her um you could have taken us both home and then when i got older you know and i and i, and I got my druthers and i and i started to understand um, what this was and I said hey what did you do to my mom they could say oh she's down the hall she's like she's in her room you know she's right here with all of us um, but you know instead she was just completely discarded and I mean when I met her uh, it was really clear that I mean you know that that trauma like it ruined her life it wasn't it wasn't getting pregnant at 16 that did it it was you know the like the the forceful separation this kind of coerced adoption um, and then just being kind of left with this, you know, this feeling of like, oh, well, I abandoned my son and and there's nobody to help you. And there's nobody to, um, you know, to to try to kind of uh, like encourage you to I don't know. I don't even know. Like It just feels like, yeah, she needed help. And instead, we just we just took from her and sent her on our way. Um, yeah, it uh, it makes me angrier every time I think about it. Um, you know, when I met her and, and and when we, you know, we really started to get to know each other, it became pretty clear to me that every system of care that she interacted with, you know, be it the foster system or the adoption or, you know, even just like going to the hospital for stuff, um, like she always experienced it as violence, um, you know, and in so many instances, it, it it's clear to me now that the way that we do care 
especially as we administer that care to people of color, is often violence. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, anyway, this all this is to say, I don't much care for adoption. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's it's interesting hearing you talk about, like, yeah, your your mom was a child when she had you, and and it seems like there's a sense of, you know, there's hope with a baby, but with a teenager, it's too late. And so it's yeah. kind of that separation, uh, I think, in people's minds somehow, where it's like, well, we can't give a 15-year-old a chance at a better life, but we can. We have this little malleable baby, and we can do good with that child or something. I don't know. It's just... Yeah, no, it's true. And, you know, the thing I would say to people is, um, like, it was too late for me, too. Like, I was always going to be who I am now yes. you know I at the end of the book uh like I, I say um you know if if my family had been paying attention they'd have known that they were raising a storyteller and then maybe the story would be different you know um they they knew who I was I mean I like I could read before I got to school I was writing books by the time I was six years old I I've always been like this um but you know we do have the sense that well it's a baby so we can we can brainwash this baby to like us um, and, you know, you can't do that with a like a, a you know, a strong headed 16 year old. But, you know, the reality is that like we are who we are because of where we came from. And you cannot wash that away. You can't erase it. Um, you know, and so this this idea that that like it's safer to adopt a baby than a, a full grown person. Like, no, a baby's a full grown person like that baby is already a person um, like that personality is locked in. Um, you know, you can traumatize the person into being a bit more docile, I suppose. And that's what happened to me. But um, otherwise, I mean, I am who I was always going to be. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask about I know I, I heard uh, I was listening to an interview with you and you you had talked about how at first you had written your book um, as a way for your mom to get to know you. Yeah. Uh, and now you have these two wonderful little kids and uh, this book is for them in a sense uh, too mm -hmm. to understand you and and where you came from how has being a parent shifted the way you write yeah um i mean i don't know if it's it's shifted the way that i write but what it has done is is just given me a, a new context you know i think that uh, like before you have kids you're kind of you know, you're locked into your own perspective and like you can have perspective or whatever, but, um, you know, you're not living long stretches um, where, where someone else is the main character in your story. And then you have kids and suddenly, you know, well, now they're the main character. Like I, I think about, you know, uh, we watch a lot of these, a lot of these Pixar movies and, and they all make me cry. Um, but what happened when I had children was that um, the reason that these these movies made me cry changed completely you know first it was like you know like oh well like i'm dory and and she's she's looking for her parents and she's found her parents and i'm sobbing because i know what that feels like and like oh wow like what an incredible moment for dory the fish um but then you know when my children were born it was well they're dory like where did i go oh they must be devastated i really hope they find me you know and then and then when they find me, I mean, I'm crying to because I'm being reunited with my children, you know. Um, so I think that like that perspective was was really valuable while I was writing this book, because, you know, I would try to go back to to my own childhood and I'd think like, oh, well, that made me sad. But then I would also think, I mean, 
well, if I did that to my son, I mean, he'd be, he'd be devastated. You know, he, I, I don't think he would ever get over that. Like my partner would leave me if I did that to my son, like this would blow up my whole life. And, and, you know, he'd write a scathing book about me and he'd be right to, um, I think that it, uh, it, it just gave me that, that sense of how, um, I think how horrific some of the things that happened to me as a child were. Um, and, you know, when you're a kid, like everything is just normal, right? Like it's, it's, well, I guess, I guess that's just what happens. And it's not until you, you know, you grow up and you, you start to, to share the stories of your childhood that people's eyes start to bug out and you're like, I'm sorry, what happened to you? Um, you know, so a, a great example actually is, uh, uh, early on in the book, I, I talk about being being tied to the chair at the dinner table um, because I, I wouldn't eat my steak. And, um, you know, I've told that story to a few friends and uh, like it's just always been like, oh, well, and this is a funny thing that happened. You know, uh, like I wouldn't eat my food and my parents had to do this because, again, that's what they said. Right. Well, we had to do this because you wouldn't eat your food. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I guess I was just a bad boy who didn't eat his dinner. But then later. Um, you know, I, I was talking to my therapist about it and she gasped. I was like, what? Like, what? She's like, well, Harrison, um, like that's abusive. He's like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? So, um, you know, realizing that, that this moment, um, you know, is something that I would, I would never do to my own children. Um, you know, and then, and then being able to look at my children and, and, and realize like what a just a like an awful thing that would be to do to them um i mean it made me it made me angrier than than when it happened to me the thought of it happening to my children um was yeah like it, it made me furious and uh you know there are there are chunks of this book that i i wrote so angrily because i had i had the perspective of having children and allowing these things to happen to them um, you know, so yeah, I think that's probably, <laughs> that's probably the gift they've given me is yeah. the righteous anger. Yeah. <laughs> what was it like to, you know, I know your mom has passed and, and you were able to share the book with her, but like, what was that like for her? Because she was, you've, you wrote about it and you've talked about it where she was just so full of love for you. Mm -hmm. It was just like oozing from her. Um, yeah. That must have just been devastating to for her to have to kind of engage with some of this that had happened to you. Yeah, um, you know, I, I didn't really think about how um, like how horrific it would be for her to read. Yeah, you know, um, I I gave her the book like, well, here's my life. You know, once you've read this, then you know, you'll you'll know me. Um, and uh, she called me uh, just sobbing uh, after reading. Uh, I think it's chapter seven. It's uh, or maybe chapter eight. Um, it's the chapter where I, I get my haircut. Um, and you know, I mean, that was a like that was tough for me to remember. Um, you know, I was really upset after I finished writing it. But I also like I wrote it one time. Um, I I never edited <laughs> it. I didn't I didn't read it again until I had to record the audiobook. Like I really did not engage with that section again. Um, you know, but. Like, I, I guess I didn't I didn't realize, like, how brutal it actually is until, um, you know, my mom called me, like, just beside herself. Um, you know, she was in tears. It took a long time um, of just kind of listening and, and letting her cry before she could even catch her breath, um, you know, in order to, to talk to me about it. And, um, 
you know, when, when she finally calmed down, she said, like, is this true? Is this what happened? I was like, yeah, yeah, that's what happened. Um, you know, and then, yeah, I mean, you know, she said like, you know, Harrison, I'm so sorry, but, uh, it was like, it was just the depth of it, you know, and, and the fact that she, like, she even kind of blamed herself in some ways for that happening. Um, you know, I, I, I didn't realize then how hard that would be for her to hear, but, um, you know, I mean, the, the cool thing that came out of it was, you know, as I started to, to kind of comfort her and reassure her and tell her, like, hey, it's not your fault, right? Um, like, none of this is your fault. Like, you were a kid and, like, you were tricked and I was tricked. And, you know, that happens, that, that haircut happens at uh, the same age that she was when she gave me up. Um, you know, it's, I mean, that's something that, like, we were both being, we were both being taken advantage of at that age. And we we both didn't have the the knowledge um, that we needed, and we didn't have the the kind of backbone at that point to to stand up for ourselves. And as we started to talk about that, you know, we really started to talk. And it was it was one of the first times I think that uh, you know those those kind of last walls, those defensive walls that we you know we put up a long time ago just to get through life. You know that those walls started to to come down. Um, you know that uh, that conversation uh, it was on the phone. Um, was the first time I told her that I loved her. Um, you know, it uh, it just allowed. Oh, now I'm gonna I'm getting all emotional too. Um, yeah, it uh, it was horrible, but it, it it just it opened it you know opened up a space for us to to really be vulnerable with one another. And um, you know, I, I think neither of us had allowed ourselves to be vulnerable with anyone, and would not have dared to be fully and truly vulnerable with one another. Um, especially when we both had to kind of, you know, like callous our hearts to the idea that, uh, that, you know, the other person even existed or mattered in our lives. Um, you know, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was a long time coming and, and I, like, I don't regret writing that story, but, uh, it, it definitely, it was, it was jarring, I think for both of us to, to talk about and to, to revisit. Yeah. As an author and sharing your work this way, like you, the book is so vulnerable and you share these moments like the scene with the haircut and, and there's so many others uh, that are so, I mean, I, you write them once and it's like, okay, we're done. I don't need to yeah. see that again. It's there. Um, but there's that moment when the book comes out and then people read it and then they ask you questions about it or mm -hmm. you have to do a reading. Have you been careful about you know, what you share with an, a wider audience in like a public setting, like obviously people are reading it, but something happens. I mean, we've all been at those very uncomfortable author events where things go sideways and unfortunately we have to deal with it. But are you like, how do you protect yourself in those moments? Oh, I love that question. Um, I I mean, it's, it's a two part of my answer here. Part one is uh, I don't I don't protect myself at all. Um, and I realized that I needed to after, uh, <laughs> you know, the kind of first push of like of press and interviews that, uh, you know, that followed the release of the book, um, you know, and and when it was done, um, like I, I thought like, oh, I did all these interviews and, and it was great. Like I'm just answering questions. Uh, but when it was done, um, you know, I fell into like a full blown depression um, and I've been warned um, the the memoirist Jenny Hadrian Wills. Um, she said to me, you know, just like, be careful with what you share and, and be careful because every one of these interviews is a little paper cut. Um, and if you aren't taking care of yourself, um, I mean, it's a lot of cuts. 
so I I kind of you know I, I kind of brushed that off like oh yeah, yeah I'll be fine I mean I've already done the the big emotional labor it, it won't be a big deal um, you know but it was a huge deal and uh, so now you know I'm I'm still willing to be to be very open um, I, I still I still like I want to answer every question um, you know and I, I often tell people like there's no question I'm not going to answer like just like ask it and let's, and I'll react to it. I mean, if you say a question that makes me angry or sad, like that's your answer. Um, but uh, originally I, I felt like I, I could not show that kind of emotion, you know, that I just, I, I kind of fell back into my, my people pleasing mode, just like, well, I need to belong. And in this space, the way to belong is to, you know, be the, the star author up at the front of the stage who is never rattled by, you know, these, these big questions. Um, and, uh, you know, lately I've started to uh, to practice a little bit more of what uh, the memoirist Sean Hitchens calls uh, creative hygiene. Um, you know, just a little bit of time for myself. Um, you know, after interviews, I usually take a moment, like do like a mindfulness exercise or just sit quietly and have a cup of coffee. Um, I often you know, I take some notes um, how I'm feeling, what I was thinking about. Um, you know, usually there's something I said during the interview that like, actually I should put that in my next book. So then, you know, I'll put that down, um, you know, and then just like trying to have moments of stillness and, and, you know, take care of myself a little bit more. Um, cause I, I didn't do it while I was writing the book. Uh, I didn't do it during that first promotional push. Um, you know, and I like my, my mental health really, <laughs> really tanked as a result. So, you know, now I'm trying to take care of myself, um, but uh, yeah, it's been hard. Yeah. Um, I, I mentioned to you at the gala that I had been listening to the audiobook, uh, and it's great. I highly recommend it to everyone. But what was it like for you to work on the audiobook compared to working on the actual book? Was it mm -hmm. like, what was that experience to have to read your work aloud many, many times, I'm sure? Yeah. Um, you know, it was actually really incredible. So you know, I mean, that was the first time that I, I had read the book back from, you know, cover to cover. Um, you know, my editor gave me like all these editing suggestions and I would go through them kind of section by section. But it was a little bit like, um, you know, there's that that scene early in Midnight's Children where the uh, like the doctor is going to, to visit his patient and he's actually not allowed to see her whole body. Like they will just cut holes in the sheet uh, and, you know, he'll look at, at this one part of her. Um, and it, you know, it enchants him and eventually he falls in love with her because that's what happens to people. But, um, you know, for me, it was like, yeah, I will look at this one section, but I'm not engaging with the work as a whole anymore. I did that already. So, um, you know, with the audiobook, that was the first time. And it was really hard. You know, it was uh, like it was it was hard to 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 realize how um, like how brutal the story actually is. It was hard to to just kind of take it all in at once. Um, you know, people have told me like, hey, I, I'm reading your book, but I need to take breaks. And I mean, I've never in my life heard heard of a like a, a book where you have to take long breaks. Like, what are you talking about? You just keep reading. Um, but, you know, then reading my own book, it was like, wow, I need to take a break. So, um, you know, I took my breaks. But I love reading aloud. Like, it's one of my favorite things to do. Um, so, you know, we we did most of the audiobook in in one take right it was just i just i just read it um you know i think we were scheduled for like four 
you know, five hour sessions and we finished in three sessions. And the last session was, you know, like maybe a couple of hours, just like the last chapter or so. Um, yeah. So like when you're, when you are listening to it, um, like it's not really edited. It's not patched together. There were very few sections that I had to go back and do again. Like it's a straight read. Um, and I, like, I really enjoyed it and I, I, I want to read more audiobooks. Um, you know, I'm, I've sent an email to my agent just like, Hey, like get me in the mix for other people's audiobooks. It's, it's just super fun. I love doing it. Um, and I, I'm always delighted when I hear that people are listening to the audiobook of Invisible Boy because, like, I kind of think that's the best one. I, I encourage people to read, read audiobooks all the time because I just don't think, I mean, a really well done audiobook is like, it's magic. Like, it's just, it, mm. it adds so much. Like, I really, li, Little Harrison came to life to me in such a different way because I had you reading it to me it was just really great and I've said this to like Danny Ramadan and I talked too and and I listened to Foghorn Echoes on audiobook and he had two Syrian actors doing the two characters which is just like golden so I am such a fan of an audiobook yeah that's awesome if I hadn't even thought about having somebody play the characters if I could have I would have gotten Meryl Streep to play my mom but I'm glad I couldn't because uh, then she would have been too likable <laughs> Everybody loves Meryl Streep. Yes. Um, I wanted to ask you another like memoirist question. I've moderated a ton of events and people who write memoir always ask about writing for your family and yes. writing, you know, people want to protect their family. And uh, do you show things to your family before you print it? And how did you approach your family? Because, of course, there was your adoptive family and then your mm -hmm. biological family. Um, did you approach that differently, different members of your family differently? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I shared everything with uh, my biological mom because, um, you know, she loved me and she was endlessly supportive. Um, you know, right up until the end of her life, um, you know, there's, there's always that moment where, you know, when people are dying, they start to kind of think about their legacy and, and how people will remember them. And, you know, she was on, uh, uh like a, a drug that gave her, uh, like a bunch of anxiety. And, um, as she started thinking about that, you know, she really panicked about the book and she was like, I, I don't know if I like this book anymore. So, um, you know, that's when, uh, I changed her name in the book and, um, originally it was dedicated to her and she asked me to even take that out um you know and then closer to the end of her life um you know she changed her mind about all that but it was it was too late by then the book had already been printed and stuff um but you know i i shared it with her without any any reservations um i didn't share anything with my biological father uh, i think he's a jerk um you know and uh it it didn't matter he got a hold of a, an unpublished version of the book and caused all kinds of problems for me um sent a letter to the publisher got the book postponed threatened to sue uh, it was a there was a lot there's a lot um and, and then with my my adoptive parents i mean i told them what i was doing um i told them why i was doing it i told them every single story um that was going in the book you know i, I wasn't hiding anything um but uh i also knew that that when the book came out there was a pretty good chance that they would never speak to me again um and and that's borne itself out um you know i haven't heard from them since the book came out um you know over a year ago now so i mean i i just assume they're gone 
and you know that makes me sad sometimes but it also makes me feel free like it it you know they like they police my thoughts they they police my life they they stop me from being who i wanted to be who i needed to be um you know and i was always going to have to kind of uncleave from them in order to you know to to live a full life so um you know i like i i miss i miss having a family let's say that um you know i i miss feeling like there was somewhere to go home to um and you know someone to call when something bad happened in my life but um you know i i can acknowledge now that like it wasn't it wasn't a good space for me really like it wasn't a it wasn't a place of refuge um you know and and it wasn't a place where i felt like i could actually be myself it's a it was a place where i had to kind of like twist and contort myself into the the shapes that they wanted and um and hold a lot back and and kind of be a fake self so um, you know, I, I don't miss I don't miss having to do all of that. Um, but the thing I said to all of my family uh, is uh, this is what I'm doing. You know, there wasn't a, like, hey, uh, can I write about this? Like, do you give me permission? Like, no, my story is my story. And I reserve the right to tell it whenever and however and to whoever I want. Um, you know, you can disagree with uh, being that open. Um, I, I've had uh, like friends say, you know, well, yeah, you know, what happens in the family that stays in the family. Like, but that's bullshit. Like, I don't that's not how that should go. Um, yeah. You know, and I really think that if you like if you can't tell your story, if you can't offer context for who you are, then you can't fully live. So, you know, for me, there there there, there were no qualms about just telling it. Um, and, you know, I'll write lots of other memoirs and I will not ever once ask for permission to tell the story of things that happened to me. If you don't like the way that you look in that story, um, be different. Yeah. Honestly, like uh, I'm not the sort of memoirist who's going to make myself look great. I don't think that that's very helpful, honestly, um, you know, for me to just kind of, you know, like puff myself up and be like I was perfect and everybody was a jerk to me like I'm going to be honest um but yeah if that honesty makes you also look not great sorry um I'm not changing it yeah I always forget who said it whether it was like Andy Dillard or um Joan Didion but it's you know if if someone didn't want us to write badly about them they should have behaved better yes and it's like yep <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Joan uh, Didion and I would have gotten along. Yeah, she seems great. Uh, yeah. Seemed great. Um, the other thing I've heard a lot too. I, I did my MFA in creative nonfiction, and and people talked a lot about like the dangers of writing memoir as a way of healing. You know, like that mm -hmm. if you need to do that work, go do it with a therapist. Don't do it on the page. Yeah. How do you feel about that? And was it healing to write Invisible Boy? Yeah, um, it was very healing. And, you know, it was also like traumatic. It was difficult to go back and relive these memories. And, um, you know, like, like, I, like I said earlier, that that did take a toll on my mental health. But, um, you know, I don't write to heal me necessarily. You know, I think that, yeah, therapy is good for that. You can, you know, you can go and do the work of healing yourself privately. But, um, you know, I tell these stories because I, I think that storytelling is is how we heal each other. You know, I think that the I mean, the the main point of this book is that, you know, I'm not the only one that this happened to. 
and and as you know kind of unique and singular as my upbringing seems it's like a mirror image of a lot of other people's experiences you know i've heard from from so many transracial adoptees who've just said like this is exactly my life like all of this stuff happened to me like you know my parents tied me to the chair i had one uh, adoptee here in vancouver say like my parents also bought me uh like a 2001 toyota echo and then were weirdly emotionally manipulative about it um you know it was like wow like that's that's so specific to you know to my experience but i mean these things kind of you know i often think that like you know you are one of like 12 versions of yourself in the surrounding area you know there's like a million other versions of you like all over the world but like if you know where to look like you're across the street you're down the block you know you're you're you know i don't know you're over on commercial drive like you're up on main street like it's you're there's so many of you um you know we think that we're singular but people just kind of repeat like sprites in a game so i i think that you know the, the point of this book is like all of the other me's here like here's a story that like you can respond to you can you can you know allow it to corroborate your own stories you can you can take the language from this book and apply it to your own stories and then you might be able to express them better um you know there are there's so much value i think in in sharing stories and telling stories because it just it gives people context for their own lives so you know personally i mean the the like i'll do my work in therapy but i i know and i hope that other people are bringing my book to their therapist and saying this one really messed me up because you know a lot of this happened to me too and then that's a jumping off point for them to achieve healing that was harrison mooney Harrison's book, Invisible Boy, was a finalist for the 2023 Hubert Evans Nonfiction Prize and the 2023 Jim Diva Prize for Writing That Provokes. If you would like to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website at bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also find us on social media, on Instagram, and Facebook. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.